And our students are dismissed. However, our junior high actually is meeting in our office space out here because um, somebody's using the room to my left, so they can leave at this time. <clears throat> if you're new with us for the first time uh, or on live stream, as you can tell, we are uh, making our way through the book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible, in many ways the most climactic and yet also um, the most mysterious. And we're trying to take some of that mystery out of it and show you that in fact it has something powerful to say to the church. So with that said, um, I want to pray and then let's uh, consider scripture together. Gracious Father, on this Memorial Sunday, Memorial Day weekend, anticipating tomorrow a time of reflection and thanksgiving for those who have paid the ultimate price of laying down their lives for the freedoms that we enjoy we give you thanks and we express gratitude. Many of those freedoms are taken for granted these days. At the same time, Lord, we pray that you would teach us to use our freedoms in service to your kingdom, service of the gospel, in service to the glory of Jesus Christ and not just on, our, on ourselves. And we are mindful also that we have many Christian brothers and sisters around the world that exist in uh, systems of tyranny that are oppressive and antithetical to the Christian faith, and yet they still gather together to worship your holy name, and they wake up each day and they walk the walk of faith and they fight the good faith uh, fight um, with courage and boldness, and we thank you for their inspiring examples for the, many of them also um, meet and live out their Christian lives at risk of losing their own lives. So Lord, we just pause and thank you. Um, for your goodness, your good, whether we have these freedoms or not. And we ask that you'd help us to live our lives in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus. I pray for us as we gather around this word, this holy word of chapter 10 of this book that you have written. Lord, I just ask that you open our ears and our hearts, that we'd be honest with ourselves, that it would just, wouldn't just bounce off, um, that we wouldn't Consider it just a lesson for our minds to understand, but for our hearts to believe and embrace and to, to respond to and to live out. And so I, I pray for that. We pray for humble ears and eyes to see what you have to see, uh, show us in your word. So uh, be with us this morning, Lord, in Christ's name, I pray. Amen. <clears throat> I have been thrilled and excited, I think, and I speak for most, to know that there's a lot of young families at our church and with young kids, if you stay between services, oftentimes you hear a lot of mayhem. Um, some people don't like that. I love it. It's just a, a sign of life. And, uh, but I've noticed that um, young couples who find themselves pregnant in these times are much more apt to not learn the gender of the baby prior to birth, which kudos to people who do that. It's like find out a boy or a girl at the moment, you know. Um, that never worked for my wife and I for various reasons. Uh, one is that we're way too uh, passionate about choosing colors for a baby's room, <laughs> pink or blue instead of androgynous gray or white, right? But for me, uh, when we had our three children and we decided to, to find out the gender each and every time, uh, it was kind of personal. That is to say, I, I'm the only son of my father, and my father is the only son of his father. And his father is the only son that we know of, of his father. So we have four generations of single sons, which means like the Deckard name 
is if you're going to liken our name to the males to a family tree, it looks like a stick, all right? So if I had all females, there's nothing wrong with having all females, the line would have ended with me. Now, I know that in the context of salvation and eternity and the kingdom of God and so forth, the desire for a son is highly insignificant. But it mattered to me. So the pressure was on my wife. We're pregnant with number one. And we go to the doctor, and it's a Lake Forest Hospital, Chicago. And the lady who was doing the ultrasound said, do you want to know the sex of the baby? I'm like, yes. You're going to have a boy. And I was like overwhelmed, overjoyed, and my wife was relieved. <laughs> a boy. The stick continues. Got pregnant number two, California at this time here at Parkway. And again, the lady who did the ultrasound said, do you want to know the sex of the baby? It's like, absolutely. It's going to be pink. We're both overjoyed because now we have Ken and Barbie. <laughs> we have, so I have somebody to go backpacking with and she has somebody to talk shoes with. Then came number three, and some of you remember this. The ultrasound. This is the tie tiebreaker for our family. The lady who does the ultrasound, do you want to find out the gender of the baby? Of course, I'm, yeah, you're going to have a boy. And I'm like, finally, five generations or four generations to be the fifth. We broke the pattern. It's not a stick. It's a Y. Now we have the chance to torture the world with more Deckard boys. It was a happy truth. In each case, it was a happy truth. We were in a doctor's office, a very different context, with some close friends, a wife and a husband. Circumstances were different. We were there to find out the results of a biopsy because she had an anomalous mass in her body. So we went with them as moral support to hear the truth. The doctor, of course, said it is cancer, and you stop there. That's a kind of truth that hits you dead, like stops you in your tracks. It's a, it hurts, it destabilizes you, all of a sudden makes you question your future. Am I gonna be around to see my grandkids? It's one of those really hard truths to hear. But the doctor went on to say, but we believe it's treatable. And if you follow my prescribed treatment of chemotherapy and surgery, I believe we can beat this. They received the hard news, and that hard news had a way of pushing them towards the prescription and the hard path of undergoing chemotherapy and surgery. And here we are years later, and she is in complete remission and doing well. There are easy truths to hear, and there are difficult truths to hear. There are easy truths to communicate, like you're going to have a baby boy. That's easy to say. It's happy to say. Who doesn't want to be in that position, telling somebody what they want to hear? And how difficult it is 
how difficult it would be to be in the doctor's seat and deliver the bad news. The hard truth, your test turns up, turned up positive, and now the road is a difficult one. But how necessary, right, that, that hard truth is. But how, how, how good it is in terms of where it goes and what it motivates. To listen to the hard truth, process the hard truth, and realize I need to walk a different route in order to experience healing. When it comes to the Christian life, there are happy truths and there are hard truths. And many times the hard truths, are, as hard as they are to hear and as hard as they are to deliver, are for the purpose of healing. Wounding for the sake of healing. And we're at a passage, chapter 10, that was just read, that's really all about the truth. At the center of it is this little scroll, which contains revelation from God to John. Like this chapter serves as what you might call a recommissioning to preach, recommissioning to prophesy, or in terms of what we have, to write down for future generations to hear and to study and to take to heart. So this is a chapter about John's recommissioning to tell the truth. But it's not just a recommissioning. I think it serves as an example for us. Because the next chapter, which is part of the same vision, we see the same role given to the church. That is of being truth conveyors, communicators of the truth of God. That each of us bears some responsibility to being able to tell the truth. The happy truth and the hard truth. Now, where we're at, just so you understand the structure, we went through the seven seals, and we noticed that there was this nice little interlude between sixth and seventh seal. And now, interlude is not a time to go get popcorn and soda. <laughs> it is an interlude that serves a purpose. And in that case, chapter seven of Revelation was that interlude where God provides a numbering of his people to secure them, and then there's this vision of the victory of God's people. That was chapter seven. Well, we've been going through the next series of sevens, which are the seven trumpet judgments. And as with the seals, there is this interlude between the sixth and the seventh, just like there were between the sixth and seventh seals. And it serves an important purpose, and it mostly has to do with truth and God's people and their responsibility to bear and even die for the truth. We're looking at the first part of it, which has to do with John, and next week, which is a far more complicated passage, chapter 11, verses 1 through 14, which largely deals with the church. So with that said, this, this, this chapter, this part of the vision, breaks neatly into three parts. The first one focuses on the origination of the scroll of truth. And then there's this swearing about the execution of the truth. And then there is this consumption of the truth on the part of John. He's to take this scroll and figuratively speaking, supposed to devour it or eat it. So I'm just going to follow that threefold breakdown all about the truth. The first part deals largely with the origin of the truth. Truth from above. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring, when he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what is 
of what the seven thunders have said and do not write them down. That last part, which is a bit enigmatic about the seven thunders that apparently carry communication. And a voice comes and says, don't write that down. A reminder that God is in control of what's revealed and what's not revealed. Some things are hidden and some things are exposed. This is a rather awesome picture if you think about it. This, this angel is described in terminology that is uncomparable in terms of angels. You won't find an angel in all of the Bible that's associated with these kinds of thing, descriptions like the face shown like the sun and had this, like a hat like a, like a rainbow or both feet planted on earth and sea. This is a picture of a colossal angel. The question is, who is this angel that is unparalleled? Now, some have interpreted this to be an angel that is just a very high-ranking angel, maybe a five-star angel, as in five-star general angel, which some have said this is, this is what the angel is. It's just an angel. It's just a high-ranking, glorious, full of splendor angel. And others have answered the question differently, and they see this as a representation of Christ himself. Now, however you take it, you should be able to, we should be able to have vanilla lattes together. I am tipped towards the side that this is an image of Christ himself. I'm gonna get, not going to get too deep into why, but I want to provide some why so that at least you understand that there, ha- there should be roots or reasons underneath an interpretation. And if this part you're not interested in, well then hit pause for a second, take a drink of your coffee, and I'll hit play in a couple seconds. Several reasons. It, it stands to reason, or it seems to be consistent, that the one who commissioned John to speak the truth in the beginning, chapter 1 of Revelation, was Christ, the risen Christ. No mistaking, chapter 1 was about Jesus saying, write this down. Seems consistent that when he's recommissioned, it would be Jesus who would do the commissioning. Second, is that Jesus took the scroll from the Almighty in chapter 5, and he unsealed it. And here is a scroll in the hand of this mighty angel, opened, seems to follow. The other reason is that there are such striking parallels between the description of Jesus in chapter 1 and 5 and the description of this angel here. So just peruse this for a second. Descriptions of Jesus in chapter 1, he's coming on the clouds, and here there's a description of of the angel wrapped in a cloud. Back to Jesus, his feet were burnt like burnished bronze, and here in this passage, legs like pillars of fire. With regards to Jesus in chapter 1, his face is like the sun. Here you have the mighty angel, his faith is like this, faith is like the sun. In chapter 5, verse 5, Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah, and here this uh, mighty angel calls out in, 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 a, in a lion's roar. In addition to that, the Old Testament almost always associates the writing on the clouds with aspects of divinity. And here he is wrapped in a cloud, this angelic being. In the Old Testament, the pillar of fire was a manifestation of of Yahweh's presence. And, you know, the cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. And here you have this angelic being on two pillars of fire. The only hang-up with that interpretation, by the way, um, is that nowhere in Revelation is Jesus referred to as an angel much less another angel. 
To counter that, I think it's important to recognize in the Old Testament, God's presence at times is embodied in someone called the angel of the Lord. So that Abraham met the angel of the Lord and bowed down before him, and then the angel proceeds to speak to him first person as the I am, as God. That Israel wrestled with God in the desert, or wrestled with this angel of the Lord, and later said he wrestled with God. That Moses saw the angel of the Lord in a burning bush, and the voice came out first person from Yahweh saying, take off your sandals, for the ground you're standing on is holy ground. As much as the book of Revelation is steeped in this Old Testament imagery, it's highly possible that this angel of the Lord image is being used. So I tip towards that direction. However, the point is the same. So if you hit pause and you didn't care about what I just said, come back to it. The point is to show that this recommissioning, this scroll, finds its origins in heaven. That is from the throne. It's, it's, it's God's revelation. It proceeds from him and therefore is supremely authoritative. And that's enhanced or affirmed by the fact that this angelic being or the person of Christ takes both feet and he plants them on land and sea, a sign of universal sovereignty and also a sign of universal application of this scroll that he holds in his hand. This is not a human word, this is a divine word. And it, 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 it's good for us to be reminded that what we have in the book of Revelation in particular and in the Bible itself is not truth from, from the side. It's not truth from humanity. It's, not, it's truth that comes from above. It's truth that proceeds from God and therefore is the highest truth we have, the most authoritative truth we have, and is universally applicable to all nations. That is, I think, the point. This word, this scroll, comes from God and therefore must be listened to. It is absolutely true. Now, contrast that with how, how uncertain and unstable much of what we consider in our culture passes as truth. And yet, people are willing to put or stake or put their lives on the line for narrative truths, some of which we experience, some of which are very violent. What's true today is considered obsolete or old-fashioned tomorrow, worn out. New evidence has shown that our old way is not the right way, and so there's a new way. It wasn't too long ago that the commonly conceived truth was that coffee is bad for you. And then someone discovered, oh, but it's high in antioxidants, so therefore it's good for you. Just leave out the cream. It wasn't too long ago, some of you will remember, that butter was deemed bad because it was high in saturated fats, so margarine is better. You know, you take some vegetable oil and somehow make it into a semi-solid mass and put food coloring in it and make it taste like butter, that's better for you. And then it shifted again. It's like, well, it may be low in saturated fats, but it's high in trans fats, and that's bad for your heart. So then it shifts back again to butter. Where did this mysterious virus come from? From a marketplace or from, from a laboratory? Laboratory. Hmm, it was one thing last year. It's a different thing now. 
When I was growing up, it was an assumed truth that gravity holds the visible universe together. Now, gravity can't account for what holds the visible universe together, so there must be something invisible that gravity uses to hold the whole thing together that we can't see or put under a microscope called dark matter. Everything's changing. What was true last week might not be true next week. That's the world we live in. That is truth from below. Truth from below. Now think about it in terms of your own life and the important questions, the critical questions of life, like, who am I? Where are you going to go to find the answer to that question? Certainly not San Francisco. Who am I? Where do I really come from? Where am I going? Are, are we here alone in the universe, or are we a cosmic mistake or accident? These are all critical questions of, the, of, the, of existence. You're going to trust in the truth from below to answer those questions? Because it's always changing. Thankfully, as, as, as believers, we believe God has provided truth from above that's supremely authoritative, that comes from the sovereign throne of God and, and therefore is universally applicable. The Jewish people, at least the believing Jewish people, they understood that God spoke to Moses. That's truth from above. And they believe in the Torah. They believe that God, and we believe with them, that God spoke through the prophets. He sent his message to the prophets and through the prophets to the people and to the nations. That's truth from above. We, at Christmas, celebrate the Word made flesh, God's own communication wrapped in baby flesh. That's truth, the truth from above. And here John sees this mighty angel, might be Christ, might be an angel coming down with this scroll of truth that's supremely sovereign. And here, to, to me, I'm just, this isn't trying to be preachy, in my own estimation, the question of what is the truth is the question that this, our generation has to answer for ourselves. What do I believe? Did this come from below or above? If you answer that question right, everything else falls into place. If you believe this came from below, then we have no certain answers. What are we doing here? You might as well eat, drink, for tomorrow you die. But we believe, as the Jews and Christians have, there's truth, absolute truth from above. That's the first part, is the scroll comes from above. Do you, do you believe that? I think most of you do. But if you really believe that, then you're going to go on to do the next, or third part three. I'm going to move into part two. It's going to have an impact on your life. It's not just something that you can hold out here and say, yeah, I believe the Bible's from above. If you really believe that, it is going to transform the whole of your life. Your future, how you see yourself, how you see other people, how you treat marriage, how you treat children, how you interact with politics. If you believe that the word is the highest truth from above. I'm sad to sad to say that I think some Christians are more passionate about talking about the Constitution and the First and Second Amendments than they are 
about the highest word of the land. That is the scripture, the word from above. And I love our Constitution, as I know you do. But let's be consistent. Second, the next scene, we see something not strange, but moving. And that is, there is this this image that presents a sense of certainty about the future in particular. He sees the angel who's standing on the sea and the land in verse 6. And this angel swore. This is this colossal angel, foot on land and sea, swearing by him who lives forever, who created the heaven, what is in it, and so forth. And what he swears is this, there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So he's swearing, no more delay, the end is going to come. A, a, a reminder, by the way, that but by the time you get to each of the sevens, the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet, you come to the end of the story. That the prophets spoke of, the servants of God, you think about it, the, from the first prophet, Moses, all the way to Malachi. The prophetic voice of the whole Old Testament points forward to, a, to the finality of the story in terms of final judgment and final and wonderful and euphoric salvation. They pointed towards it. Jesus himself came and pointed towards it. The apostles spoke of it, and and Revelation, again, is the capstone of describing that future, the end of the story. He is announcing and swearing that the consummate anticipation, expectation of a thousand generations of believers have been looking forward to is coming. It's going to happen. The fact that he's swearing, an angel, you picture him. You know, swearing, this is going to happen. The future is certain. It's going to happen. That, too, is an important truth to take to heart because um, there's so much uncertainty out there with regards to the future, especially man-made futures. Some of us are hoping that the future will be stable enough that by the time you get to retirement age, you have enough money in the bank and the market hasn't gone completely, completely cattywampus or our culture hasn't been, our society, our country hasn't been so submerged in inflation that you have no money left. Future feels so uncertain. In terms of health, I don't know how long I'm gonna live. I don't know when it's gonna be me in that doctor's office waiting the prognosis or the diagnosis of my issues. Or you, just uncertain. It's hard to feel uncertain. And yet with that uncertainty, we're looking for certainty. And, and we oftentimes depend on things that are, that are flimsy to give us hope, like bruised reeds. <laughs> Only to find out that the world we live in, and you know this, we know this, we just came out of and are still in the midst of uncertainty. I know a lot of us are hoping, man, please send my kid back to school. I'm hoping for that, and I know some of you are too. And it looks like it's going to happen, but one thing we know is you don't know for sure. Right? I was climbing an oak tree one time, and I was a young man, and it was... Uh, 
out in the country, I was by myself, and it was completely, utterly stupid to climb a tree when you're by yourself, because something happens to you, you're, you're by yourself, right? And it was, the trunk was about this big, and it was a solid oak, and you know, oaks are strong, and it could, it could hold my weight back then, and it still hold my weight, and there's this, it's a thing you do, is you climb trees, I don't know why, but there's a tree you climb it, and so I climbed, and there, there was this particular point, I think I was eight to ten feet off the ground, and, and there was this one particular branch, it was about four inches in diameter, and it was, you know, four inches can easily hold my weight. And it was one of those moves where you got to kind of go for it. And I went for it. And as soon as I grabbed hold of that four inch branch, there was a split second where it was, an, it was like one of those uh-oh moments when your, your stomach goes up into your throat. There was no crack. There was no slow no, it, 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 it broke off like styrofoam. The outside was covered with, with nice-looking bark, but inside it completely dry-rotted. It just completely snapped. There was no cracking. And in that moment, you feel what you feel or what I felt the first time I went down the Tower of Terror in Disneyland. You know, I think it's something else now, but there's 13 stories, and they, you know, take you up there, and then there's just, just this moment where you're looking, and then it drops. You know that? First time I, I did that, and that feeling, I grabbed the dude's knee next to me. <laughs> it was really awkward. Back to that tree, that was one of those moments, and I hit the ground hard. I kissed the ground hard. I... I knocked the wind out of me. I got up and checked my bones and realized I had luckily not broken anything. I just got the wind knocked out of me. But I learned an important lesson that day. Just because it looks secure doesn't mean it is. Even if your future looks secure from a human vantage point, it's not. Don't depend on it. Rather, if you're going to put your eggs in one basket, put your eggs in the basket of the word of the Lord, where the future has been guaranteed 100%. It's not conditional. It is certain. Our future is certain. Thank the Lord for that. One thing I can count on is that our future, as declared by the word of God, is certain. Which brings us to the third section of this. If there's truth from above that is supremely authoritative, it is sovereign over all, and it is universally applicable, and there's truth about the future that is certain, that is brought out by this text. The last part of this is the bitter sweetness of the truth. It's interesting, before I read that, to just think about how God has chosen to communicate his truth. He could have done it directly, and he, at times he did it by sending an angel, like when he sent an angel and declaring the birth of Jesus. Most of the time, however, he has chosen human agency. That is humans, like John, the, the Apostle John. Ordinary humans like you and I, and um, imperfect, jars of clay, to deliver his supremely authoritative, certain message. And that message itself, in its fullness, is a bittersweet. So John is instructed here 
to go and take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the land and the sea. Now, that, of course, would scare me. It's like, you want me to approach Colossus here, whose face shines like the sun, and take it out of his hand? Is there some kind of, like, heat shield that I can take up with me? And he does. He takes the scroll, and he's instructed to eat the scroll. Again, it's figurative, as you need to internalize this truth, this scroll. And the scroll is going to unfold in the following chapters of Revelation. How far, I don't know. It doesn't say. Except in this recommissioning and then the following chapters, I think it's safe to say that that's some of the content of this scroll. So he eats it, and sure enough, it's sweet in his mouth and bitter in his stomach. There's one truth. That is the scroll. And you're going to experience two things as you internalize it, as you take it in. It's going to be sweet to you. And then it's going to be bitter to you. Two experiences, very different experiences. One truth, two experiences. I think there's a huge application in this for us. The first part of that application is that the Apostle John is told to consume the scroll, which means all of it. All of it. The parts that are going to be sweet and the parts that are going to make your stomach bitter. You're supposed to eat all of it. The application, of course, to us is we are commanded to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. We are supposed to internalize the truth. Internalize God's word. Internalize the gospel. That means consuming it. And not the parts that are sweet all the time. But the whole of it. That which tastes good and that which makes the stomach bitter. In other words, you don't just eat part of it and go, I don't like that part, bump, done. The whole of it. Recognizing full well that within the truth, there are hard truths and there are happy truths. Some that will be sweet and wonderful. When I read Revelation 21 and I, I, the, the words like, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That is an unmistakably beautiful, sweet, wonderful truth. Or to hear the words, Behold, I am making all things new. I meditate on that, and I just I want to sing like that. That's strawberry, strawberry rhubarb pie. That's lemon, lemon meringue. That's chocolate mousse is so good. But then there's other truths in the chapters that follow that are harder as we internalize them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and the death in Hades gave up the dead who were in it, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. As I meditate on that section of Revelation 20, perhaps part of this scroll, and I think about 
the people in my own family who don't know the Lord? And where, what judgment means? That's hard. I have faces that come to mind as I pray for my family, my extended family, knowing full well that without the Lord, they're going to experience the bitter parts of the truth. And many of you feel the same way. You internalize the truth of God and you realize there are parts that are hard, especially when it comes to family, those around you, and other parts that are sweet. Church, if we're, if we're, if we're going to be faithful, we have to consume both. How will we truly feel the burden for the lost if we don't consume them both? And not only consume them, but as John was then called to convey them, to speak them, the hard and the happy truths. And how important it is to keep those two together. In the same way that my friend needed to hear the doctor say, your test results came back positive. That was a hard truth. But the beautiful thing about a hard truth is it oftentimes points a person towards a prescription, towards healing. If it takes a hard truth of, you know what? A failure to embrace the cure means eternal separation. That's straight up truth. No doctoring it up or making it nice. It just is a straight up truth. Apart from the cure, there is eternal exile. Should move a person to go, is there any cure? I don't care whether it's chemotherapy. I don't care whether it's surgery or radiation therapy. What is the, what is the prescription? Now, and that's where the hard truth should move a person to a happy truth. That God himself has come and taken the sin of your cancer and died for it so that you could live. That's the good news. The hard truth should move a person to the happy truth that there is complete and utter pardon in the person of Jesus Christ so that we can have this certain, wonderful, magnificent future that's so sweet. Which brings us back again to the central challenge. What are we doing with this thing called the truth as a church? Are we consuming it, both sides? Do we feel the burden that comes out of consuming both sides of the truth, the hard and the happy? And are we willing to pray and ask for opportunity to speak those difficult and happy truths to those around us, to people in our family, to our, our nephews and our nieces, so they might then be driven to the prescription that there is salvation in Jesus and Jesus alone. We have an opportunity this morning, actually, to consume the truth. The Lord's Supper, it's kind of a perfect tie-in. I mean, if you think about it, the bread and the cup, symbols of his death, are, are bittersweet. We take the cup, which is a symbol of his, uh, his blood, and the bread, a symbol of his, his body that's been completely beaten for us, and, and we're reminded of what sin needed to happen. That is, we needed someone to take our place. It reminds us of who we used to be and where we would be without Christ. The cross is, is a bittersweet, and at the same time, it's sweet, because through it, we have freedom and pardon, forgiveness, hope, all of those things. So 
as you, as you come this morning, just maybe come with the, uh, the pondering and the consideration of what am I doing with the truth? Here I am consuming the blood and the body of Christ. What am I doing with this truth? Have I internalized it and am I willing to convey it? Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, even if you don't attend this church normally, you're, willing, you're, you're invited to come. This is a table that is for God's people. Um, we have pretty much every option here. You know, if you don't want to be, we have the little wrap-up cups that you can come take and not have to be near anybody. Um, just stay, you know, six feet away from the person in front of you, you'll be fine, which is almost impossible to do. Anyway, um, we have gluten-free and we have gluten, just need to ask for it. As I pray, could I ask those who are going to come serve communion, um, come to the table. Father, we um, come to you as, as your people and just ask that you would use this time to feed us uh, spiritually, um, our minds, hearts, I pray that you would catalyze us once again to be bearers of your truth without shame, without cowardice, and with confidence and courage, Lord, we pray. So bless this time as we consume the truth that has set us free in Christ's name. Amen.